fancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Come on in for an evening of poems and stories about the American West. A land of legend, of romance, of friendship and courage. A motherload of remembrance. A true showcase of the Old West with the old cowboy, J.C. Holsey. January 21st, my wife started getting sick. She had pain on her right side. We thought for a little while it could be appendix. She has a history of kidney stones on her left side. She suffered all night long. We called the doctor first thing the next morning. Couldn't get in to see him until 2.20 in the afternoon. I took her to the doctor's office. After waiting for what seemed like forever, she got in to see him. After another very long wait, he sent her to the emergency room. I took her over there, and we went in, and they started hooking up all the machinery and stuff. It looked like they was going to take pretty good care of her, so I left to pick up Sophia, our great-granddaughter. I called a little bit later, and she was resting pretty good. I called her the next morning, and she was crying and hurting really bad. She told me they weren't doing anything to help her. I dressed and hurried to the hospital. I marched in that hospital like a general of a conquering army, hollering and issuing orders, again, like that general. I do have to give the nurses credit. All my hollering was taken without any of them getting upset. In fact, once I settled down, I found out that the nurses were extremely nice. I talked with the doctor on the phone, and he assured me they were going to help her. Looking back at the incident, I probably shouldn't have went in like I did. I probably overreacted, but my sweetheart was hurting, and you can bet your bottom dollar I ain't going to sit there and not say nothing. Although, as an afterthought, a person probably shouldn't holler at the individuals taking care of you in a hospital. But this old cowboy didn't think about all that at the time. All I could see was my wife was laying in that bed hurting. She'd been hurting all night, and the way I saw it, nothing was being done. So I let my emotions take control. I will say this. It seems as if things got better after I arrived. They finally hooked up a pain medicine machine, and she's resting a little bit easier. There was another incident that I didn't understand. My wife's laying in bed. She's hurting. She's been hurting for two days. If she moves, it causes much pain. There was a couple of young folks came in wanting to get her out of bed to do physical therapy. They had her almost sitting up when I intervened. I couldn't understand why anybody would want to put her through that. So I told them she wasn't going to do it, and they left. I finally had to leave, or I was going to keep barking out orders and getting in the nurse's way, so I left to get ready for a book signing. The book signing is another story. We'll talk about that a little bit later. How about let's listen to some good old country music right now. Here's a very special young man named Ivan Daigle. Ivan was a contestant on Canada's Got Talent. This is his audition which led him on to the finals. Ivan Daigle singing Raymond. I'm going to sing a song called Raymond. It uh, talks about Alzheimer's, which is very rarely touched upon in the musical community. I work down at Ashbury Hill. Minimum wage, but it pays the bills. Cleaning floors, leading hymns on Sunday. Catherine Davis, room 303. Sweetest soul you ever could meet. I bring her morning coffee every day. She calls me Raymond. 
thinks I'm her son Tells me get washed up for supper Before your daddy gets home She goes on about the weather How she can't believe it's already 1943 She calls me Raymond and that's all right by me There's a small white cross in Arlington Reads a Raymond Davis 71 Till she can see his face again I'm gonna fill in the best I can Till she calls me Raymond that's all right by me. That was great, Ivan. Now, Ivan didn't win Canada's Got Talent, and this old cowboy can't understand why he didn't win. Now, don't misunderstand me when I say I didn't approve of Canada's choice. Everybody's got the right to choose the way they want to. But listen here, Canada. This time you made a mistake. If you mention Colt's revolver carbine, most people get a puzzled look. If we call the same gun by its more colorful name, the Buntline Special, you see quick nods and eager recognition. Of course, this is White Earp's trusty weapon, the most fabled, disputed and sought-after weapon in Western lore. 31 pistols in the serial range, 28,800 to 28,830, carry the name, the Buntline Special. These guns had special frames that were manufactured for use with oversized barrels in 1876. This was the same year dime novelist E.Z.C. Judson, who wrote under the pen name of Ned Buntline, presented an extra-long barrel Colt 45 to each of the five Dodge City lawmen, which were White Earp, Bat Masterson, Bill Tilgman, Charlie Bassett, and Neil Brown. It was said that Masterson and Tilgman found the 12-inch barrels unwieldy and had them cut down to standard length. However, White Earp kept his special as received and regarded it as his favorite over any other gun. Many stories are told of Earp swatting unruly cowboys over their noggins with his special. This practice was called buffaloing. The White Earp television series starring Hugh O'Brien was the debut of the special, with O'Brien displaying remarkable speed and agility in quick drawing the long barrel colt. The TV series caused every young cowboy in America to want one of these Ned Buntline specials. Our special guest today is an author that I met at a book festival not very long ago. However, I already account her as a very dear friend whom I admire and respect very much. This is Miss Tracy Lawson. We want to welcome to the Wild West Showdown today, Arthur Tracy Lawson. Welcome, Miss Lawson. Thank you. Let's start off with you telling a little bit about yourself, where you was born, where you grew up, and so forth. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, lived there until I got out of college and then um, married my high school sweetheart. Traveled around a bit while he was in grad school, and then um, now he's a college professor. So we've lived in Florida, Alabama, and Texas, in addition to Ohio. So um, I, I suppose I'm a southern transplant. But you're where you need. 
need to be now in Texas, right? <laughs> yes, apparently. Yeah, it took me a while to get here, but I did, I did arrive. Okay. How long have you been writing? Well, I've always wanted to write, but I had a 20-year career teaching dance. And when you're involved in another creative career, it's really hard to find the time to be creative and write. I started writing probably about 2010. My first book came out in 2012. Well, I read someplace where you published, what was it, 27 books in the first grade? Oh, yes. Well, that's true. If you want to go back to the olden days, well, yes, when, uh, back in the days when the mamas came into school and typed up our little stories, yes, we had a, a young author's program in our elementary school, and we were supposed to write two or three stories over the course of the school year, and the moms would come in and type up on the typewriter and sew the pages onto a cardboard binding and cover it with contact paper and then give it back to us to illustrate. And this was probably the coolest thing that had ever happened to me up to that point at the age of six, right? It, because I loved books so much, and I thought it was really amazing that my stories could be put into that kind of a permanent form. I was also one of those kids who was a little further ahead in the reading than my classmates, and so my teacher would always tell me, well, if you're done with your work, why don't you write a story? And so by the end of the school year, yes, I had 67 books to my credit. Which, of course, is an impossible pace to maintain, but um, I always, that kind of put the fire in me to want to be a real author one day. That sounds like a fantastic thing for the teacher to do. I wish they'd do that in today's schools. I know. It seems like a, just a little push in a creative direction would, would give a lot of people that are bored something to, something to really aspire to. So. Uh, have you ever considered republishing all those stories you wrote as a kid? <laughs> Not too long ago, my mother and I were cleaning out some closets, and we found a bunch of them, and, and really none of them are um, are worse. <laughs> no, they were sweet little stories, but, but no, I, I think none of them were really ready for the light of day. <laughs> I think folks would love to read what Tracy Lawson did as a six-year-old. Oh, that's hilarious. I don't know. Maybe at some point I will see if there's anything I can call from those and develop into something that's <laughs> okay. uh, a little bit more worthy. I asked this a while ago, but I asked you how long you've been writing. So you've been writing all your life, but when did you publish your first book? 2000, what was it? 2012, yes. Now that book, um, and you've seen that book, that's my Fit Spots, Doggeries, and More, my history book. And honestly, I did put 20 years in on the research and the writing of that book, but I always say I could have done it in five if I'd had the internet when I started. Okay, the, um, the name that of that book. The name of that book. Oh, that's a tough one. It's Sips, Bots, Doggeries, <laughs> okay. and More. Yes, and so yeah, I might have to spell that out for you, but it's um, the title is roughly translated from antiquated terms that we no longer use. It's roughly um, money, parasites, bars, and more, and it's a, a a journal of travel from Cincinnati to New York City. My ancestors took a horse and wagon trip in 1838, and they were going on a working vacation. And my, my great-great-great-grandfather kept a journal every day of the 55 days they were on the road, and I got a copy of it as a Christmas gift in 1990. All right. And that was what set me off on that journey. And I thought, you don't really know much about 1838 because we don't study it extensively in school. And I didn't know a lot about what was going on in America at the time. And my research proved so fascinating, and Henry's insights were so great that I thought, you know, I can't ruin this by making it into a novel. I need to present his work in its entirety and then annotate it and explain it and then give people context. And, and so that's what I did. And, and part of that research was you and your daughter made that same trip by car. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. I planned um, a week-long trip with my daughter, who was eight at the time, 
She was my research assistant and my she kept my photo log because that was back before we had digital cameras. So she was keeping track of what we had taken photos of. She read the journal and told me, Mommy, we need to stop here. We need to look for this. You know, and so she was a great little uh, backseat uh, navigator. And we drove the entire route over two summers, but we did it in two weeks instead of 55 days. You wrote that book about your grandfather's adventures. Mm-hmm. And then you've, you've written two novels, fiction. Tell us a little bit about them. After all that work and the research and the fact-checking, I thought, boy, I'd love to just make something up and have it be right because I say it's right. <laughs> so I thought, well, let's just delve into some fiction. Again, the, finding the big idea is the first and foremost problem. And so I was you know, still working on the last edits for Fips and Bot, but I was also mentoring a friend of my daughter's. And he wants to be a writer when he grows up. And he had asked me, would you take a look at some of my short stories? So I was um, having fun working with him and, you know, working on his writing. And one day we were between projects and he said, well, why don't we just kick some ideas around? And his suggestion was, what if everybody was on LSD and all thoughts were communal? How much fun would it be to just run with that idea and write a scene? So we decided we were going to retreat to neutral corners and, and write and then come back and share what we had written. That first scene that he wrote ended up in chapter three of my finished first novel, and, and then the scene that I wrote ended up in chapter seven. We didn't know where we were headed with it, but it was fun to create these characters and put them in these scenarios. And then eventually we started asking, well, why is everybody on a mind-altering substance? And it was like, well, you know, if they want to be, that's okay, but it might be more fun to write a story where they were being tricked. So we went with that. It's like, well, who is big and bad enough to trick an entire nation into taking a mind-altering substance? And then right away you arrive at a dystopian story. It was a fun thing to work on, and we worked on it for a while together. And then when it got to be the beginning of his senior year, I I sat him down and said, okay, we're going to make this thing work. We're going to finish this story. And he said, Tracy, I, I just don't think I can keep up the pace that you want for this. And so you go ahead and take my characters and go on without me. And now I'm I'm just about wrapping up the third book in the series, and it's going to the editor at the end of the week. You took the research for your grandfather's journal pretty serious. You, you even went on a trip about it. Uh, did your research? Yes, I did. Did your research for this mind-altering drug include that? Now, see, people <laughs> ask me that. Yeah. High school kids ask me that, and and the first time it tripped me up, I said, "Oh yes, I did. I researched it," and they all went, "Ooh!" and goggled at me, and I said, "No, no, no. I googled it." I understand you're self-published. Can you tell us why you're self-published? Yes. Um, I did seek a uh, publisher at first. I was under the misapprehension that I could just write books. <laughs> and I would have somebody to, to market for me and to you know promote the books for me and that everything would be fancy, fancy and wonderful and all that. Um, I found a publisher that I thought was a good fit. And it was a boutique press. She said, well, you know, you're going to need to do some of your own marketing. And I said, I understand, you know, I'll work with you. Well, over time, you know, the first book came out and the sales were kind of, uh, and I was a little disappointed because I expected a little bit bigger, you know, rollout or whatever. And, and we went along for a year. You know, I had a contract for three books and I'm getting ready to submit the second one. And that was when we started having disagreements about the editorial we had disagreements about the uh, cover and we had disagreements about the release date. She had set a release date for me, but then said, well, you know, I don't really have the budget to promote you this time. So basically I'm going to do an email blast on the day of your release and that's it. Oh, my heart just fell to my shoes because I actually 
really like the second book in the series. And I thought, it's just not fair that we that nobody's going to even know about this book. And, and B, the cover was a disaster. And I thought, no one's going to pick up this book and want to read it. And so I tried to talk my way around. I tried to reason. I, I hired myself a PR firm to handle the, you know, the book tour and the rollout and everything. And then the delays began. And she delayed me over a period of four months to the point where I paid money to the PR firm and I used up all my billable hours before the launch. And they were nice enough to kind of try to do the launch, but they lost a lot of bloggers because of the delays. And I finally, in frustration, she sent me an email one day. And this didn't even warrant a phone call, apparently. Um, Here's why your book's not coming out. Five reasons why my book wasn't coming out. And none of them were reasons that couldn't be worked around. So I wrote back and I said, hey, look, the delays are unacceptable. You bring my book out on the date that we agreed or cut loose. And the response that came back was, fine, you're cut loose. Mm. I had a little panicky moment where I ran around in circles and, you know, oh, no, 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 what am I going to do? I let myself panic for about an hour um, because it was three weeks before my release date. And I still didn't have a finished book, um, didn't have a cover, didn't have anything anymore. I got counteract back, but I had to redesign the cover and the interior matter, according to the severance agreement. Mm-hmm. And so I was just so relieved to get my characters back because I felt like I had sold my children into slavery. Yeah. The royalties were ridiculously low. I was discouraged from doing any promotions on my own. And if I did do promotions on my own, she still made so much more money on each sale than I did that it really wasn't worth my time to do any paid promotions or put any much effort into anything. And so everything was just languishing. And I felt so depressed and so sad because I really love my characters and I love my story. So taking it back over again was like the best thing that could have happened to me. And now I'm in control of my own marketing. I'm making more money than I was when I was with her. I, I see a brighter future for my books because I feel like I'm in control of my situation. I hear so many, so many stories just like yours mm-hmm. where the publisher takes advantage of an author. And uh, that's the reason I started my own publishing company to, to help and not, mm-hmm. not hold them back. Absolutely. I, I did keep my, uh, my publisher. I have, I'm happy with the publisher that handles my history books out. Jerry McDonald is a good guy, okay. and he will treat you right. All right. And he's in McDonald and Woodward Publishing in Newark, Ohio. You call yourself a hybrid author. Can you explain what that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a hybrid author is one that works with a publisher and also publishes other works independently. And so I'm, you know, I think this is kind of the best of both worlds for me right now. I'm not opposed to working with another publisher in the future. And in fact, um, for the next series I have planned, I may look for a publisher. But right now, I'm just happy that I can work with my resistance series and I can bring out my, my series of four books on my time and on my terms. But then I've got somebody to guide me through the history books. We talked recently about you having your books made into audios. Has that happened yet? Yes, actually. Um, you'll be really proud of me. I've got a lovely gal who is doing my voice for um, for the Resistance series. She's very versatile. She does different voices for all my characters, and I'm, I really love working with her. She's up to Chapter 7 in the first book right now, and that should be coming out and available in February. I want to, if she's, if she's willing, and I hope that I'm not too hard to work with, I hope she'll want to start right in on the second book in the series once we get um, Counteract done. And then I, my goal is to have her voice um, ignite and be able to roll out the audiobook at the same time I release the paperback and the ebook. You said that uh, she does different voices for the different characters. How do you come up with these names for different characters? And, and, and as far as that, the titles for your books. I think character names are really important. I have a baby names book that I use. Okay. And I had another book that I borrowed from a friend that has um, like the meanings of names and then 
you know, character traits of names and things like that. So I would explore those avenues while I was thinking about how I wanted to name my character. For Kareem, the, the protagonist girl that I created, I liked her name because it had roots in words that meant heart, but careening also means moving forward out of control. And I thought the combination of those two things was really cool. And so I dug a little deeper on her name, and I found out that that is also a name that means nutshell in Latin. So I thought, there's this girl with a tough exterior, but a good heart, and she's in a situation that's moving her forward out of control. And I thought that was a perfect name for her. I try to put a lot of time in on my names and get them right. I've heard a lot of explanations about how people come up with names, but you're doing a lot of research just on a name. That's a lot of time involved in that. I noticed this morning, I checked Amazon, Counteract is number 38, and Resistance, which is a, a new release, is number 92. How does that make you feel to have the readers accepting you like this? It makes me happy that um, I'm sharing a story that people find exciting, and they, that, you know, enough to read it and let somebody else know about it, because that's really the important thing, is getting out there. Yeah, I really wanted to create something that would make people glad they read it. How did it make you feel when you got that first book in your hands with your name as the author? I cried. Fits and Bots was one thing. Fits and Bots was like, I reported the story because I was just a nonfiction. I was more of a reporter than a creator, even though I brought all this information together. But something about opening that first box and pulling out a copy of Counteract, I, I did. I cried a little bit. And then I started to laugh because I was like, you dummy, you've got a three-book series contract. You're going to do this again next year. It's a great feeling, isn't it? It really is. And it was a great feeling of accomplishment. And it was kind of like whetted your appetite for more. You do your own publicity now. How much time do you give to that? Well, this is my full-time job, a couple months out of the year, I still do some dance stuff. I, I choreograph a few musicals for high schools and middle schools. So basically from December to September, I'm full-time working on my book. And then I drop to part-time in the fall when I'm busy in show season. All right, you're, you're on Facebook, you're on Twitter. Do you have any other ways that folks can contact you? Um, well, let's see, I've got a website also. I've got two websites. My one that encompasses all my books is called TracyLawsonBooks.com. And the one that's specifically for the Resistance series is called counteractbook.com. What advice would you give to a young author just starting out? Wow. Um, don't think of it as a source of income. Do it because you love it. Strive for balance. And I would also say don't give up. Don't let somebody tell you that it's that you're not good enough. And I would say learn your craft. I can't, I can't even tell you how much I've learned over the last four or five years, even if you're lucky enough to get a publishing deal you're still going to have to be involved in the marketing. You're going to have to be a presence on social media. And you're going to meet some really cool people along the way. So look at it as like an all-encompassing journey. So if you didn't make any money at all with your writing, you'd continue to write. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, I'm still continuing to write. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that someday I will climb out of the red. What was your favorite treat as a kid? Like candy, cake, something Mm -hmm. like that? I always like the sour candy, so things like Lemonheads and Jolly Ranchers are my favorite. Listen, it, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Wild West Showdown today, and, and I want to give you a special invitation from the old cowboy to come back and visit with us any time that you feel like you want to. Well, I would love that. Maybe once resist, or once the uh, next book releases, maybe I can come back then. That sounds pretty good. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. You bet. We'll talk to you later then, okay? Okay, you have a great day. Now let's listen to a short interview with Dennis Ledbetter about how he became a singer and a songwriter. Well, in the beginning, my mom 
had a phonograph and she played a lot of country music. I had an uncle that came by and spent a few weeks with us and wrote about six George Jones records with him and I've been in love with that forever. My inspiration started with George Jones and then I got into Merle Haggard, Conway Twitty. Randy Travis came along, I really enjoyed him and I like uh, Hank Jr. real well too. They've all inspired me quite a bit. If I was going to describe my writing process, I would say that when I hear a hook or something that sounds really interesting, I'll start with that and I'll build a chorus around it. And then from the chorus, I'll develop the verses. Then from there, the, you know, the song develops. All of my songs come from daily life and inspirations from things that I see and do and things that people say. I'm always on the lookout for a good hook to start a song with. Country music to me, is the best way that people can express their feelings and make people understand who they are and, and, and what's going on in their lives. And it just touches people. I, just, I really enjoy country music. My name is Dennis Ledbetter, and I'm a singer-songwriter. Let's listen to one of them songs that Dennis got inspired to write. It's called Drive Me to Drinking. Hello. Well, hey, buddy. You know, them mothers is mad. And rightfully so, because drinking and driving don't mix. But if you'll drive me to drinking, I'll buy the gas. If you drive me to drinking, I'll buy the gas.
That was a good one, Dennis. How about you out there? Are you a singer? Are you a songwriter, a poet? Do you have a talent you want to share with us? Why don't you send an email to jc at outlawspublishing.com or jc at theoldcowboy.net. Let us know what you want to share on the Wild West Showdown, and I guarantee you this, we'll do that for you. I was at Walmart the other day filling up with gas. On the other side of the pump was an elderly gentleman. I leaned across and I asked him, Hey, you remember when gas is 25 cents a gallon? He turned, lifted two bony fingers and said, I remember when it was two gallons for a quarter. He was 90 years old, and you know he looked more healthy than I felt. We visited for a bit. He told me how he got paid $50 a month for going to welding school. Now that's something young folks today would like getting paid to go to school. He said his wife went to the hospital to have a baby. They kept her for five days, something unheard of today. His hospital bill was $47, which was a big chunk of that $50 he was getting to go to school. We visited a little bit more before he had to leave. I did give him my phone number. I hope he calls. I'd like to visit with him some more. What's that old saying? Like two ships passing in the night? You know, we meet a lot of different people on this trail of life. Some, perhaps, we'd wish we hadn't met, but there's many others, like this gentleman, that I enjoyed our short visit. Speaking of meeting people, I do enjoy meeting the folks at all the book signings I go to. This last Saturday, the 23rd of January, I went to Half Price Books in Cedar Hill, Texas. Half Price has been very nice to me to let me set up there for book signings. Andrew Durbin is the manager, and he's one of the nicest people I've had the pleasure of meeting. In fact, all the folks that work there at Half Price in Cedar Hill are great folks. Well, how did the book signing go, you're asking? Like most book signings I've been to, it could always be better. However, the bottom line about any of these events, in my opinion, is I had a great time. I met a lot of nice folks, and I even met some that I wouldn't consider was very nice. But I did hand out a lot of business cards. The thing I don't understand is this. I've got a pretty elaborate setup, but folks seem to have a blind eye. If I don't speak up, they'll walk right past me as if I'm not even there. I compare it to a fishing trip. I can see all the fish in the water, but most of them aren't taking the hook, unless I do something to attract them. That's when I speak up at an event, and like a fish on the line, I reel them in. Like I said, I do enjoy going to one of these events. A special shout-out goes to Ivan Daigle, and Dennis Ledbetter for their music today. And thanks to Tracy Lawson for sharing her thoughts with us today. Now you know I ain't going to let you leave without asking you what you want to contribute to the show. Won't you send an email to jc at outlawspublishing.com or jc at theoldcowboy.net. Let me know that you listen to the show and also let me know what you want to share. You got a poem? You got a song? You got an idea? You got a story? Whatever you want to share. Let us know, and we'll help you get that out there to the listeners. Now let's hear some good old cowboy wisdom. You can't tell how good a man or a watermelon is till they get thumped. This is the old cowboy saying adios and happy trails. Come on back next week to the Wild West Showdown with the old cowboy J.C. Holsey.